0: Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're gonna be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they wanna celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to WorkHardPlayHardExperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over, it's time to live. Our
1: our biggest meal is dinner and then we go walk the dogs after dinner and uh, that keeps my glucose completely almost flat after a pretty large meal. So these are little tricks that people can do Being a professor and doing a number of the things that I do, just, it's a lot of time and effort where I'm not, I don't feel like I'm using my skills. So really decreasing the menial tasks and and admin work and working on designing a life to do that. I come across as being very passive and maybe Patient, but internally I'm pretty Type A. But I, I'm many people say I'm I'm overly like passive. I don't internally I do not feel like that.
0: Like that, like that. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Dominic Diagostino. Dominic is an associate professor at the College of Medicine and Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology in Tampa, Florida. So. Dominic is really the genius behind so many things when it comes to keto. So I didn't want to spend a whole lot of conversation in the world of keto. Much of that you could just find on the Internet. What I wanted to do was I wanted to learn a little bit more about him. And I wanted to learn about all those other devices, these wearables that everybody is wearing, the whoop. To measure all the different biometrics, the levels, uh, you know, little implant thing that you put on your arm to measure sugar, uh, the aura ring, and all these different things. And what we wound up getting into was a great conversation about how each of these things really do something different. So it just sort of depends upon what you're looking for. And one of the things that uh, came out of this interview was I learned that wine is a health food. <laughs> You'll understand what I mean when you get into this episode. So, without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Dominic DiAgostino. Dominic, welcome to the show. Great to be on. Thanks for for having me. I am super excited to have you on the show, mostly because your name is Dominic Diagostino, and I'm in Italy and I'm surrounded by food. And I, I need your help because these carbs, they, they're going to win. They're going to win. So I, I, need, I need your help. We're going we're to get into detail on ways that you can help me and everybody else with the kind of work that you do. But I, I think a, a good place to start would be to take you back. To the '80s in uh, in Cream Ridge, New Jersey, could you uh, sort of uh, paint a picture of what Sunday dinner was like for you in Cream Ridge? Wow,
1: yeah, <clears throat> you just brought back a vivid memory. Yeah, in the '80s, so uh, Sunday was you know uh, the family day, big family Sunday dinner of pasta. You know, pasta. My mom would start the sauce, you know, early in the morning. I'd wake up and I would smell the sauce early in the morning. Sunday, we typically go to church and, uh, you know, come back and maybe watch foot- football or something, depending on the time of year. It was also, I was very much into dirt bikes and ATVs and that kind of stuff. So, would, you know, usually get a chance to do a little bit of that during the day or, shooting target practice, that kind of stuff. We sort of live in a rural area, but yeah, yeah. The big family Sunday dinner, uh, lots of pasta every Sunday.
0: (laughs) Was it like, you know, the long table with, you know, uncle Louie at one end and the grandmother at the other end. Was it that kind of Italian thing?
1: Uh, yeah, my, my grandma would walk up, she lived near us. And I remember my mom would like call my grandmom. And then I would look out the window and say, yeah, grandma's walking up or Nana would call her. And, you know, uh, it was that kind of scenario. And yeah, the the dinner got started at like, my mom wakes up at four in the morning. So the dinner would get started at like 4am with sauce. And mm-hmm. it was just like, you know, the whole day was just about food and it was about food and family and being together. And, and that was just part of my Italian, you know, heritage growing up.
0: You know, it's interesting. I grew up in Queens, uh, New York, not that far from Jersey. And my last name, Murgatroyd, obviously is not Italian, but my mother is Cecilia De Vito, and my grandmother was from Naples. So uh, everything we did was, you know, based around what you just described. It was Sunday. My mother get up around the same time, and I could smell the onions um, burning in the pot uh, as she was preparing what you know, would ultimately become the sauce. And then, you know, around 11 o'clock in the morning, we'd all, you know, grab some Italian bread and we'd stick it in the, we'd stick it in the pot. And, you know, we'd like, that was, that was breakfast. So we had a very similar thing, except I didn't have a farm growing up and you did. That's very interesting. How did you wind up or, or why, how or why did your parents wind up in such a rural area? A lot of, you know, a lot of Italian families are in cities.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, it's not, you know, it's kind of more suburb now, but uh, my parents own not a large area. We have a barn, we have tractors and a garden, things like that, and a little pond. And, you know, my, my dad worked for a utility company, but we were right next to a 200 acre farm that was, you know, Timothy hay and, and um, soybeans and wheat and potatoes. So I worked for that farmer before high school, I think seventh, eighth grade, I started working on that farm. And, you know, my job was to, you know, after school, you know, work on the farm and it would be, there was always stuff to do around our house, which was not like uh, more like a hobby farm kind of deal. But this 200 acre farm is kind of what I, I worked on throughout my uh, elementary school, all through high school and then into college. Only when I went to grad school did I really stopped working on the farm. Uh, and then I picked up, you know, summer jobs here and there working construction.
0: So let's kind of pick it up around that high school, college uh, years, you started experimenting with low-carb diets. What was it that gave you the motivation uh, at that time? Because I don't think... It was very in vogue as it is today uh, to go sort of keto or low carb. You know, it was like locale. I remember my mother doing like Weight Watchers, you know, like locale stuff, but it wasn't like low carb. What was it that gave you the motivation to kind of experiment with that at that that time?
1: Yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to, what career path I wanted to take when I was in high school, but I got really into fitness. Uh, I, I played football, broke my leg to recover. I started training. Weightlifting, and uh, quickly realized that to make any kind of strength gains or body composition changes, you know, nutrition was really key. So at the time, the Zone book—this is early 1990s—the Zone uh, was very popular. I started reading about that uh, a little bit. Atkins, but that seemed a little bit extreme. I think we had some of our cousins were doing it at the time. Uh, so I didn't really have a favorable view of a ketogenic diet, but a lower carb diet, a zone kind of approach was sort of uh, started emerging in the 1990s. Then I started reading, you know, there was a uh, Bill Phillips came out with like muscle media 2000. I would, would read all the, you know, muscle media magazines and, and the trend was for a lower carb diet, you know, doing a lower glycemic index kind of thing. And that I got really engaged in nutrition and decided to Study that in biology at, in undergrad, and uh, and kind of quickly realized that uh, there's not a whole lot of like career paths in nutrition really. <laughs> so, uh, focus more on the biology, but I still studied uh, the the two different disciplines, and and that led me to neuroscience. And you know, long story short, I did a neuroscience degree for my PhD and physiology for my PhD, and then. You know, later when I I did my PhD and started, I was funded by the Office of Navy Research. My job was really to come up with an anti-seizure strategy for Navy SEAL warfighters using a closed-circuit rebreather, which is a type of technology, essentially, if you want to call it that, for breathing underwater, uh, no bubbles will escape uh, the closed-circuit rebreather. So there's a stealth component to it, Uh, very advantageous from a stealth standpoint, uh, the disadvantage is the high concentration of oxygen if you dive too deep or too long so there's no way to predict or prevent oxygen toxicity so uh, and i discovered that the ketogenic diet actually is an anti a very powerful anti seizure therapy and it has been used since you know 1921 so I was still very interested in nutrition from a fitness point of view uh, and thought it would be cool to bring nutrition back into my research program. So, um, so I, I delved into the ketogenic diet and, uh, and then later development and testing of ketogenic strategies, including ketone supplements and ketone
0: esters and that sort of thing. All right. Let's, uh, I want to, uh, take it back to Bill Phillips because I remember that time. In yeah. fact, I I remember doing my own before and after with him. He was, he was all the rage. That muscle media 2000 thing yeah. was a big deal. In fact, when I moved from LA to, to here and I was going through all my shit in, in the garage, um, I found the picture, my before and after, uh, at that time. So it's funny that you yeah. brought that up. But did you happen to catch recently his bout with COVID? Did you see that?
1: I did. Yeah. I, you know, I saw it on Facebook. I think it came up, someone had shared it and I communicate here and there with his brother, Sean, just on social media about different things, uh, you know, in the past and, and I had been following him, but not so much bill. Uh, but then I read the story and I, you know, was, was kind of shocked. I mean, he had had COVID. He thought the natural immunity was going to protect him. Uh, didn't. And he got hit really hard and it's been a slow recovery, but he looks like he's doing well now. He's on the rebound.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I saw those pictures of him. He was, I think either he was close or was in a coma, Mm -hmm. which was like, you know, I looked at that. I was like, Holy, like he's Superman to me. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it that that had happened. In fact, he had gotten so he's still so popular that, um, Tim Ferriss did a uh, podcast with uh, Seinfeld and Seinfeld talked about Bill Phillips and that's what he uses, which I thought was, You know, it's unbelievable how it, you know, something of quality and simplicity just finds finds its, its voice, you know? So, um, okay. So it's very difficult to interview a guy like you because you have so many accolades and there, there's too many to mention. And I can go down so many paths from, you know, you studying the, the neural control of autonomic regulation to research on oxygen sensing neurons in the brainstem to the central nervous system, toxicity seizures, and what you just talked about with Navy SEALs. But I thought I'm going to leave that to Tim Ferriss. <laughs> he does a much better job of getting granular. I don't think we need to go there. I don't think my office, my, my audience needs to get that molecular. but what I what I do want to talk to you about is helping them to maximize performance because that's what we all want to do. right? We all want to maximize performance. Most of the guys who listen to the show are girls. They work out, they go to the gym, they may be in their 30s, 40s, 50s, et etc. And you know you've identified ways to help shape their diet to maximize performance through production of ketones. So real basic. What are ketones and why should we care?
1: (laughs) Sure. Uh, Well, uh, I like to kind of take a little bit of a step back. So one way, the first way that we observe that we can elevate ketones is fasting. So going without food or carbohydrates for a period of time, uh, going without food, that would be fasting or going with little food, that would be calorie restriction. And both of them, Both of those things will decrease the availability of glucose and also lower your liver glycogen. And your liver is more or less like an energy sensor. And when liver glycogen sort of gets low enough, that stimulates your body to release fat for energy. And the fat is metabolized in the liver to ketone bodies. And the ketone bodies, their primary function really is to preserve and maintain brain energy metabolism. So the brain, you know, the body really physiology physiologically we are set up to maintain energy flow to the brain and the way to do that is through the transition from glucose metabolism to fatty acid metabolism and very high fat metabolism increases ketone production. So ketone production is also a very good marker that your body is in fat burning mode. So uh, you could state it another way your your fat oxidation rate is directly proportional to your ketone level you know or vice versa so when we are in a state of ketosis, that changes the, the brain neuro, it changes the brain neurotransmitter systems and the brain energy systems to make it more resilient under extreme environments. And that's what we study: high oxygen, low oxygen, you know, different high carbon dioxide, which is called hypercapnia. We observed in the lab. That this is a way to make a super brain. I mean, you could you could feed it ketones, and uh, the brain, in in the context of an extreme environment, the brain could maintain an energetic balance and be able to be much more resilient. In a way that would prevent the big project we have is oxygen toxicity seizures, but we study many other types of neurological disorders and and conditions to the point where you know we have a neural network inside a Petri dish and I can throw on different toxins. And in the presence of ketones, those toxins would have less of a detrimental effect in terms of the energy systems of the neurons, which uh, you can measure membrane potential. You can measure free radical production. And then the big, we measure output and that's firing frequency of the neurons. They kind of talk to one another. So in the presence of ketones, and without ketones the cells die quickly under certain Stressors and with ketones, uh, the neurons can keep communicating in ways and be much more resilient. So this was very exciting to me. And through some of my you know in vitro experiments, we call, uh, I got so inspired by that that it really influenced the direction of my research program to focus on uh, ways to maximize ketones for uh, for the brain, but also for operational conditions.
0: Okay. So am I understanding correctly? And is this an accurate statistic? Is there about a pound and a half of glucose that is sitting in the liver? And when your body needs sugar, it takes it from the liver. And so if you just keep eating breads and pastas and whatever that you Will always just be withdrawing sugar that's in the liver and never be burning fat because it, it's ne- it never taps into fat. It, am I understanding this correctly?
1: Yeah, it's possible to be in on a high carb diet, and if your calories are restricted to a certain level, you could potentially deplete that liver glycogen. Or if you exercise, you know, you can deplete it and then start burning more fat. Um, but typically, the you know typical American diet uh, will will top off your, your liver glycogen, which you have about, uh, that's right. About a pound, pound and a half. It'll be, it translates to about two to 3000 calories, uh, a large individual, maybe like 4,000, 4,000, uh, grams of calories. So, uh, that will, you'll typically burn through that within, if you're in a highly fed state, it could take you two or three days, but if you are on a low carb diet, you could burn through it, you know, by the end of an 18 hour fast and be in a, in a strong state of ketosis. So, um, so typically, you know, it, it really depends on what diet you're on. And a lot of athletes, even if they're on a high carb diet, if they exercise a lot, their liver glycogen may be slightly low all the time and they may actually be experiencing uh, what we call post-exercise ketosis just by burning through liver glycogen in like a, you know, four to six hour bike ride or something like that, or a run. So it kind of depends on on the individual and their existing diet and
0: metabolism. Okay. So from a prophylactic standpoint, if somebody's, you know, they're, they're, they're so overwhelmed, so confused. I, I hear high, low carbs, high protein, all the different things. If we wanted to give them a strategy that we know, like, look, if you just do this simple and easy, this is going to work. And I'll, I'll throw one out there and you tell me if I'm close. If somebody, let's say they had their last meal seven o'clock at night and they didn't eat the next day until noon and they had a window, let's say between 12 and seven. Would that be a good strategy for the average person to implement?
1: Yeah, uh, it you know it will depend on you know what their goals are, their existing body weight, uh, if they're an athlete. Uh, if they eat all of their calories, you know, a large carb meal late at night, uh, they may not be entering a state of ketosis, but You don't necessarily have to be in a state of ketosis to get a lot of benefits just simply by what I like to... So I wear a continuous glucose monitor, and I think that's a very useful uh, tool, hardware. And then the software is part of the, uh, the hardware, and it gives you actionable information. It really gives you insight into... your blood glucose regulation around different meals, because some people can have a vastly different glucose response. My wife, for example, is an incredible carbohydrate uh, metabolizer. So if she eats a meal, like she spikes less than I do, uh, maybe because I've adhered to a low carb for for so long. So I think, you know, it depends on the goal, but I think most importantly, from a health perspective and from a performance perspective, longevity perspective, we want to stay within an optimal range of glycemic variability. And that ideally 120 milligrams per deciliter to like 60. If you're on a low carb diet or keto diet, you may dip down into like 50 or 60. So for me in in my app that I use to monitor this is I set my range between 110 and 60 and 99% of the time I stay within that range. And if I, it gives me usable feedback, depending on my food. And if I eat a meal that spikes me over, I realize, okay, I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to change, or even the order in which you eat your food. Uh, we typically have our salad first, you know, so fat and fiber will buffer, a glycemic uh, increase, a glucose spike that could occur from protein, but protein is kind of moderating. Or if if we're going to have carbs, you know, which we don't eat too much of, or at least I don't, uh, the order in which you eat your food. And then the activity you do immediately after you eat, like in Italy, I know, you know, you go out to dinner, you eat, and then you go for a walk, and that can completely eliminate the spike in glucose that you, so what we do, our dinner, our, my, our biggest meal is dinner. And then we go walk the dogs after dinner. And, uh, that keeps my glucose completely almost flat after a pretty large meal. So these are little tricks that people can do.
0: Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. The, um, the, uh, the the CGM device that goes in the arm, what's the name of the company now that uh, is the hot one that has it? What, what are they called? Yeah,
1: I just put one on here. Uh, it's yeah. Levels. Uh, Levels, well, okay. Levels Health. So I use the Levels Health system. So Levels will send you two uh, hardware devices and that could be the Abbott Freestyle Libre or the Dexcom G6. And the Dexcom G6 has this alarm when you go low that you can't shut off on the phone. So last night, I didn't want to, uh, because we started early, at least for me, I, I kept my alarm on in my phone if and I kept it on airplane mode. And I realized that now the software is such that if I keep the phone on airplane mode, it still transmits... Uh, to the Dexcom, uh, so it was beeping throughout the night because I I went below sixty a couple times, uh, so I ripped it off and actually put a new Dexcom thing on uh, this morning. But yeah, so you have the Dexcom is continuous sort of feed uh, to the phone and it works sort of through Bluetooth. But apparently, if your phone's on airplane mode, it will tell you that it's not feeding or something. So you get this auto, whereas the Abbott device, uh, you have to put your phone next to it and scan it within every eight hours. And the, uh, the way it is now, you know, you have to, uh, open up the particular app of the device. And then that information feeds into the levels Software. So, the technology is really that levels has is really the software, which gives you a metabolic score and it also gives you actionable information that you can use to really optimize your metabolic profile. And if there's one biomarker that you need to look at and track, it is your continuous blood glucose. There's no other biomarker, in my opinion, if you're going to choose one. Of course, you know, the continuous glucose biomarker, uh, is super informative in the context of other biomarkers too. But if you have to choose just one thing to have a dashboard, you know, we get in our car, we have a dashboard, you know, you get in a plane, you have a dashboard. If there's one thing to look at on the dashboard of your metabolism, uh, the continuous glucose monitor data is extremely informative.
0: I did levels before we came here, uh, for oh, about, cool. about a month. I was mostly just scared to stick that thing in my arm. Um, but then once once I had my mm-hmm. wife do it and I got that bang and it went in there, um, everything that you're describing was my experience. When I saw that I ate something and it went through the roof, I ate salad first, it was less. And when I walked after it, uh, that postprandial thing uh, leveled out quite a bit. It was pretty remarkable. What I'm going to do is is pipe it, uh, pop it in probably next week. Because what I noticed is in L.A., my Apple Watch told me I walked about uh, five to seven thousand steps a day. You know, just unintentionally, just whatever, walking around the house, etc. Um, here, I don't have a day go by where I don't do twenty thousand steps. It's remote. And this is me and my wife. This is just like going to the grocery store and back walking. You know, we live, we got a terrace that we look, looks over Florence. So it's like walking up the, you know, you know how Italy is walking all the way up those steps. So we are always walking, which leads me to my next question, which is why are these Italians so skinny? They don't look like Tony Soprano, American Italians they um they eating they're drinking wine to the point where i have no idea how they are doing it at the level they're doing it maybe they're drinking less i don't know but if i go out to lunch with my attorney where he's having he's having wine at lunch if i go to dinner it is there's nobody at any table anywhere that is not drinking wine or has a bottle of wine at the table and It is really difficult to find a restaurant here that does not have 90% pasta. So my first question is why in countries like Sardinia, you know, the blue zone where they're living to be 100 and they're drinking wine and eating pasta all the time and places like this where they're, you know, not as high as Sardinia, but they're certainly living healthy, fulfilling lives. And they don't seem to be gaining weight. What's going on here?
1: Yeah, you bring up a a good point that I observed too, just traveling through Europe and and Italy. Uh, It's definitely, there's a cultural component. You know, people are more active. They get out and about and walk around. If we're stuck in a subdivision, you know, a lot of people just stay in our house or whatever. But I think there's uh, the abundance of food, you know, obviously is, is, you know, probably higher and cheaper in the United States and the type of food. I mean, I, when I went to Italy, I, you know, brought my glucose tracking devices and things like that. And it just seemed like pizza in Naples or, you know um, I don't know all the different foods that we ate did not have the same glycemic response. So, I think how the food is prepared, the ingredients of the food, maybe the who knows, the intention that goes into it i mean Italians are there's just so much you know intention that goes into it, and there's just uh, and you just tend to appreciate the food that you're eating instead of just mindlessly eating. Uh, And I I really love and and embrace that culture. And I'm kind of jealous that you're there. Uh, Some of my best trips have been, you know, going through Italy and, you know, traveling around with friends. uh, And I miss that. And, And I and I think, you know, it's a combination of physical activity and food quality. And to some extent, food quantity too. Although I remember eating very large amounts of food, but it's still, yeah. I
0: always end up losing weight when
1: I, I, a trip can't, in a I Yeah.
0: I cannot, there's, there's like, it is, it's magic. Like imagine being in the most beautiful city in the world. Like I think Florence is the most beautiful city in the world. And like, I'm like drinking wine, eating pasta and losing weight. It's so bizarre. And being in LA, it's like, I'm sticking CGMs in my arm and I'm going to the gym and I'm trying to get my steps in. But I think we're, we're touching on intangibles when you talk about things like intention and, um, appreciation was the other word you said, I, I somehow, somehow we don't, you know, when we're talking about, you know, keto, those words don't usually come up, right? So it's, it's an interesting thing about the, you know, the state of minds that you're in, or, or, or frankly, the state of minds in the chef that cooked it. And perhaps the three to four ingredients that are in there versus, you know, the 20 ingredients or the process, the process stuff that, that you're eating. Let's talk about wine. I know that, uh, you like wine too. And I also know that uh, that you have a salad every day. So do you recommend, let's talk about salad first. Why do you have a salad every day?
1: Well, uh, I, I have noticed, you know, that eating fiber before, not only carbohydrates, but eating fiber before your protein, that fiber can help to digest, uh, help you digest and assimilate that protein. And actually, it actually decreases the glucose spike. You will have, uh, it's much more moderate than carbohydrates, obviously, but, uh, it will reduce the glucose spike. And, you know, I, I just, I love salads. I I love a good salad, fresh vegetables, going to the farm market, going to the store and just getting fresh vegetables. And it's also a means to deliver olive oil. So I'm really into different types of, you know, olive oil, too. So one of the, one of the things that part of the daily routine that we have is that, you know, I finish my workday, I turn on the music and my wife is cooking and then I am preparing the salad and, you know, we're listening to music and I start drinking a glass of wine while I'm doing that. And uh, I've actually favored uh, a company called Dry Farm Wines and every wine it comes from a small, you know, European farm that uses dry farm, you know, techniques, no irrigation, and one less than one gram of sugar per bottle. And I was able to sort of test all these wines, and there's really no glycemic response or actually a decrease in glucose because it's such low sugar. So I usually start drinking the wine before dinner as we're making dinner and salad and things like that. And it just becomes, I always grew up, you know, having salad, having the salad first. And um, you know, we have the pasta with the meal or after. That I, I I I think there's a lot of phytonutrients and I think it'll allow you to better digest, assimilate, and absorb the nutrition that comes to part of the
0: entree meal. All right, let's dig into wine now. Where is the line for you? How many glasses is the wine for you where you say, mm, once I cross two, <laughs> then I wind up boomeranging? Where's your number that you get? the relaxation uh, you know we'll 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 swap buzz for relaxation effects and we're not talking drunk we're talking like where you know you're just you're letting the day go you're enjoying a conversation with your wife you're unlocking you know that that tenseness of the day one glass two glasses three glasses where's your where's your number
1: yeah. Uh, well, I, I do view wine really as a health food, especially if it's lower sugar wine. And I do notice when I was pricking my finger, the blood would come out easier. And I had to do for school, for teaching the med students stuff, we, we covered alcohol. And it's interesting that alcohol will like decrease platelet aggregation and helps to thin the blood, which I think is important. I think most of the males in my family like died of stroke, So I think I actually consider, you know, getting at least one glass, an important health component to my diet. And I'm kind of a lightweight with one glass. I start to feel it. And with two, I really feel it depending on if I'm eating or facet state or whatever. But I do know I monitor my sleep with an aura ring. And if I have more than two glasses of wine, say after six or seven o'clock, that will disrupt my sleep a little bit more than three and four definitely will. So I usually cap it at two and sometimes one uh, yesterday, just one. So, you know, it it really depends, but it become it's also a social lubricant. Sometimes The angst of the workday is sort of permeating me and kind of on my mind. And when I can sit down, you know, with my wife and have uh, a glass of wine, it tends to, it's like a social lubricant and I just feel a little bit of relief. Uh, At the same time, I acknowledge that, you know, uh, I don't want to be addicted to something. So occasionally I will go without it, but I, I see no need Going without something that I think is having a beneficial, like uh, going without coffee, like I always have a a cup of coffee, usually two or three, three, sometimes four cups during the day. So I think I probably do have a coffee addiction. I don't think I have an alcohol addiction, uh, but uh, I would miss it if I didn't have it. And actually, I view alcohol as a health food. If you look at the Mediterranean diet and all, there's more science. So there's the ketogenic diet is a clinical diet with lots of science. But if you go on clinicaltrials.gov, which I did recently to do a full review for this course I'm teaching, there's like 450 clinical trials on the Mediterranean diet. And the only things that are consistent is that it has olive oil and that in the adult population, it has wine. And from the people, the science behind the Mediterranean diet uh, or the benefits of it are linked to those two things. So, and it could be, you know, Italians tend not to overdo it too much but it's just part of and i remember having wine when i was a little kid it was like okay to have like a little bit of wine you know uh but it was all kept within moderation
0: yeah i think that's the key right there it's moderation i was talking i went to get my hair cut today and i was everything by the way in italy everything centers around the barber so it's really it's really interesting you go to the barber and they have uh uh every night it's aperitivo hour so you go in there and you can have wine and they talk uh you know, whatever. And then on Saturday, all the men go and they, they talk about, you know, girls and they talk about football. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but anyway, I had a conversation with the barber today and, and he was telling me his grandmother's 93. And, and we talked, we had this conversation. We we're talking about wine and he said, glass of wine at lunch and the glass of wine at dinner. She's from Sicily. Um, and he said, it's my whole family. I said, Is it, does it stop at one? And he said, yeah, not usually very, unless it's a wedding or something, it's usually so moderation. I think is where we get crazy, right? They're not winos where they're you know, rolling in the streets, but they're not abstinent where they're not doing it either. You know, so I, uh, I love that. You mentioned um, that you're a, uh, a professor, you're, you're a tenured professor now, uh, congratulations on that. I know that that's not easy to do. And you are uh, currently teaching medical school students at um, Morsani, is that how you say it, Morsani?
1: Morsani College of Medicine. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. And you're teaching neuropharmacology. How much training are medical students getting in nutrition? And if the answer to that question is not much, um, what would you change about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I teach undergrad, masters, PhD students, and medical students. And the neuropharmacology is more of a Uh, That's a PhD level course. But I do teach in what is called the scholarly concentrations in nutrition program. And the med school more or less make that made that like an elective. It's sort of like an add on to. uh, And I think, you know, we had to work hard to even get that. I was on the curriculum development committee for the med school. I did like a three-year rotation. There was no way we were getting like medical, that we were getting nutrition, like hardcore nutrition courses into the required curriculum. Uh, although nutrition is so popular, there is quite a few students, you know, that that are part of this. Uh, so nutrition is still not prioritized in, you know, classical conventional med school probably because it's not on the USMLE, the boards. So students are, the the curriculum is already so compressed and so condensed, it's like shrinking from a fire hose of of information. And the university typically wants their students to do uh, as best as possible on the board scores because that makes the university look good. And if we cram in nutrition stuff that's not on the boards, then they have less time to study uh, for the boards and you know we want good blue ridge rankings on the boards and that's how the university likes to boast that they're sort of at this you know they're number 34 last year and you know they're 25 this year or whatever on on the ranking so it's all about it, it really is all about so to change that and you know it's important for university professors and people to write to the national board and say nutrition is the cornerstone of our health, and we need to start focusing on prevention. So we could manage many of these chronic diseases uh, of aging, and really make inroads. You know, we can spend a little money now, or we can spend a lot of money later. You know, that, that's even a perspective from uh, the healthcare industry to the insurance agencies. So that's why you know companies like United Healthcare are actually sending out CGM devices to pre-diabetics. So if they can catch it early and manage it, then they're not shelling out massive amounts of of money uh, once it becomes overt type 2 diabetes and all the comorbidities that's associated with it It could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to manage a patient. But if you get them a CGM device and they become aware that their meals are pushing them more towards being a type 2 diabetic, then they can stop the problem before it becomes uh, a clinically defined problem.
0: We talked about uh, levels and that being a a great dashboard for you to have. Um, I know that you um, have been dabbling in uh, uh, devices like Biosense. And a few others, and doing some comparative work around it. I had a buddy uh, fly out a couple of weeks ago. Not a not an exercise guy, not a nutrition guy, but he decided he wanted to, you know, give uh, Biosense a, uh, a shot. Um, and you know, he lost ten pounds. He looks uh, he looks fantastic. And and we were having a conversation around it. He said, you know, it's just I don't know. It just seems like it's logical to me. You know, on Monday I just. You know, I do a whole, uh, basically a 36 hour fast from Sunday night until Tuesday afternoon. And I I dump the glycogen out and I try and be clean, you know, for the rest of the week. So the question I have for you is what is your thoughts on um, a device like Biosense? And if you want to share, what do you think about Biosense uh, particularly?
1: Yeah, I was, I have... Become impressed with BioSense over time. <laughs> the first couple of devices that they sent to me, uh, I remember taking them all through Europe and Australia and Asia. We travel a lot. And uh, sometimes they broke, you know, and sometimes they just weren't super accurate. Uh, or I felt that they were super accurate. Sometimes the, the battery would just, you know, run down real quick. But I, the devices now are very good. They've, in, uh, maybe I was using sort of the beta devices. Uh, I became very excited about breath ketones. That's breath acetone because breath acetone correlates very well with seizure control. And I know a lot of kids that follow a ketogenic diet do not want to be stabbing their fingers to get blood and things like that. So as someone who's really active in the American Epilepsy Society, I chair uh, for a couple of years, I chaired the special interest group in ketogenic diets. And we would talk about different ways to monitor the state of ketosis in kids and also in adult. Results, and I started testing various breath ketone meters and I did most of them. I tested many and the readout health biosense meter is really the only FDA approved, you know, clinical device that's being used in a number of different, you know, registered clinical trials now. So I started using that and monitoring my blood ketones. And if I'm on a ketogenic diet, it actually, it correlates very well with blood ketones. And if I'm in a fasted state, your body tends to use the blood ketones and kind of dispose of them. The tissue sucks it up. And blood ketones are really not a super accurate way to measure your state of ketosis. I think if you're in a calorie deficit or you're fasting, because I could have unless you're completely sedentary behind your desk, but if you're walking in Italy, walking around and stuff, your tissues will suck up the blood, the blood ketones and you'll register kind of low, even if you're fasting, it seems kind of strange, but your breath ketones will be high. And I think breath ketones are a very accurate, more accurate way to measure your fat burning mode. So if, if, and I can smell it on my breath. It's almost like I'm smelling the exhaust of burning fat. Like I can taste it in my mouth and I, I can almost predict what my biosense meter is going to tell me. And it's a heck of a lot easier and a lot cheaper too, to just puff in this device and you get an accurate reading and I don't have to prick my fingers. I don't have to buy the expensive strips. I can puff into it thousands of times and don't have to you know pay for calibration or things like that. It'll auto calibrate. So it becomes a very practical, cost-effective tool uh, that's very, very useful, especially when you're fasting or you want to monitor your fat-burning state. It's mostly used clinically now, but I think I see it just having a much more practical application
0: for the everyday person who does not want to pay and buy strips and prick their finger. So, if you had to pick one, I think you answered this earlier, mm-hmm. but I just want to make sure I understand. If you had to pick one, the the levels. Or the biosense.
1: Uh, oh, okay. So glucose, or it, man, it really depends on. So if you are on a ketogenic diet, I think if you're on a ketogenic diet, your levels data is going to be very boring. You're going to see a flat line of glucose. But if you want to enjoy carbohydrates, uh, so if you're on a purely ketogenic diet, the breath, the biosense device is ideal that that will be very, very useful for monitoring your state of ketosis. And if you've maintained a ketogenic diet continuously, your glucose is going to be completely flat pretty much. So, but if you want to enjoy carbohydrates and you want to understand what different carb meals and different meal combinations are doing to your blood glucose, uh, by all means, you know, get the level system, uh, continuous glucose monitoring system. And you don't have to use it like, I, you know, I've had, I've worn one for well over a year now, but, uh, but I think, you know, just 28 days, you'll get a lot of insight, whatever you're going to eat within 28 days, is usually what you're going to eat. Unless, you know, what we do, people send us food all the time, keto food. So it allows me to validate the true low carb nature of some of these snack foods that are being developed and sent to us.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask you that because after about a month or so, you know, you kind of eat the same shit over and over again. So I'm like, you know i'm like why would you continually wear it and then when you said you're doing it for a year i'm like what like why yeah. would you have that in but you're but you're in a i mean you know you're uh, you're the poster child right now for uh, for keto so uh, i i'm sure that you have a lot of things that are flying at you people asking you all kinds of questions
1: yeah i think 80% uh, like you'll learn like 80% of what you'll need to know within the first you know, levels will send you two two week uh, devices. So it's, it's 28 days continuous. But then again, if you want to travel, go to Europe, check different, you know, foods. And I'm always, you know, we're running a clinical trial right now uh, with the levels device, a registered clinical trial in individuals that are using a low carb approach to optimize their metabolism. And the question is, does Does having, does using a level CGM system allow an individual to make better food choices? Is it a behavioral tool? So even if we know what to eat, uh, I think digital technologies uh, that can allow, that can modulate behavior behavior are, is actually more important than just, than just tracking that, you know, biometric or tracking that biomarker. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, when,
0: when I had that thing in my arm, I, 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 was really careful about what I shoved in my face. Cause I knew I was just going to see it. I mean, it's like, boom, here you go. This, this is what you did. Look, look at the mess you made. <laughs> you know, um, How much do you think it cost me for those uh, those, Libre, those Libre replacements in Italy in the pharmacy? How much do you think it costs?
1: Oh, I know. Yeah, US is kind of unique in that you need a prescription, right? But I know even in Canada, you can buy them over the counter. I do know the price in Canada. A couple people told me, but I don't know what they are in Italy. So I would say a Libre device would be maybe 50, 70 bucks something like that. $8. Under 50. $8, $8. $8. Wow crazy. Oh, that <laughs> is crazy.
0: Yeah. All right. So yeah. as we, uh, as we, uh, run into the, uh, sort of like the, the last, uh, l- last few minutes that we, we have together, I want to move a little bit into the personal side of your life. Um, I'm going to ask you some questions that, uh, are going to fall into the, these are weird. Why is he asking me these questions, but just, just roll with it. Um, what kind of heavy metal do you listen to when you work working out? <laughs>
1: uh I I like the group disturbed. You know, if I really need to get amped up, uh disturbed and like, you know, uh even the old stuff like ACDC and uh Guns N' Roses stuff. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: Uh yeah. what do people often get wrong about you? Wrong about me. Um uh, I don't know. I, I I come across as being very passive and maybe patient, but internally, I'm pretty like go 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 type A. But I I'm, many people say I'm I'm overly like passive and just like I don't internally I do not feel like that.
0: My that uh, my my father used to say, "Still water runs deep."
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> what are some things that you're doing that you don't love? And you wish you could do less of it.
1: Yeah, I, I need to learn how to say no more. Someone like bought me the book, learn, you know, learning how to say no. So I think, you know, just from a, a work perspective, just a lot of admin work, being a professor and doing a number of the things that I do government review panels and things like that. It's just, it's a lot of time and effort where I'm not, I don't feel like I'm using my skills. So really decreasing the menial tasks and and admin work and working on designing a life to do that, to do more of the things that I want. (laughs) And and less than the things that I don't want from an admin perspective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What is an unusual or absurd thing that you love? Like people would look and go, That's unusual. I did not think that he loves that. I'm super interested in, and
1: almost one of the first things I do when I wake up is is I look for different deals on Honda ATC three-wheelers. So when I was growing up, farm we use these three-wheelers that got banned in 1986 because they're so dangerous so i love to collect them i probably spend way too much time you know looking at them and i buy them they're called barn finds people don't know what they have and now they're collector's items so i buy these three-wheelers and i fix them up and i restore them uh to maybe it's, for, there's a nostalgic component to that, but they're a heck of a lot of fun.
0: That's exactly what I was after. If you could spend <laughs> one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why?
1: You know what? We went to Alaska in during the winter time and did some skiing and things like that. And I would love to explore Alaska in more around this time of year, actually, but we were just too busy to go this time of year. So I would have to say, go back to Alaska. We had not been ever. And we just went, uh, you know, half a year ago, but I would love to explore it. There's just so the population density is so low and there's just so much to see.
0: What would one of your friends say is one of your superpowers? I think my
1: friends say to me that how can you be so calm and patient? But I feel like I'm very impatient when it comes to things and getting things done, like I'm never satisfied with the speed. Science moves incredibly slow, and it's like painful how slow it takes to like do an experiment and write it up and publish it. So they probably think I'm super patient, but I'm I'm actually not. Am I a periodic?
0: Are you more like your mom or your dad in that regard?
1: I come across like my dad, because he's super calm and patient, but my mom is very type A kind of anxious. He needs everything needs to be done in a certain perfect way. So I feel like I, I appear like I have my dad's personality, but I think internally I have my mom's personality. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're your father, right? Yeah. You're, you, you got your father's exterior and your mother's, your mother's on the inside of you. Yeah. Um, so. What do people never ask you? You wish they did.
1: Yeah, like people think that it was me that actually did all this work as far as publications, and we were part of a lot of different research things that led to great work in publications and things like that, but it's really not me doing it. It's the it's yeah, I would like to acknowledge the. The, the lab and staff under me and they know who they are there's angela and andrew and and chris my lab tech and sarah my phd student and sean my medical student so uh it's really i would like to give more attention to the people that are in the trenches you know doing the blood draws working with the animals doing the measurements and collecting data so i think i think it's important for people who work their way up they don't do it alone so they need to really acknowledge the people under them Sure. What
0: book have you reread the most?
1: Uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, a number of different people, but uh, C.S. Lewis I think is really resonates with me more from the perspective of you know philosophy. And, you know, he takes the Christian philosophy point of view. And I remember reading Screwtape Letters, you know, when I was younger, but it didn't really resonate. And I, you know, reread that a couple of times along with uh, Mere Christianity. So there are things, uh, works that I go back to under like hard or difficult times. So I would say, and it's kind of a nostalgic thing too, but I really resonate with, with that philosophy.
0: All right. Last two questions. What is your non-food guilty pleasure?
1: Uh, oh, that's kind of easy. If I think about it, actually Netflix documentaries, I, uh, <laughs> we, we tend to watch a little bit of, of, not a lot, but, uh, and it depends, you know, if my wife is traveling, she's been doing a mission in Hawaii for, for a little bit. So I've been doing a little bit more of it. So I've been indulging in uh netflix documentary the last one i watched was countdown about inspiration four which just took off but cocaine cowboys was the one i watched before that uh it was so amazing I, cocaine it to, it was
0: so good yeah i yeah, watched, it, I watched it on the plane to, from uh oh, from you? la from la to Italy. yeah it, so, it was so good yeah cannot
1: believe that that happens It's like if you made a movie out of it that was fiction, you would say, oh, this is
0: ridiculous. (laughs) Never, never. Okay, last question. Uh, We'll change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me?
1: Wow. Uh, One question. So I guess, you know, just from a, like, what motivates you to, what are the key things that inspire you to pick people that you have on your podcast? Like, is it... I know this is more of an entrepreneurial kind of podcast, but is it like, are you... Is it like more of a self-indulgent? Like you you want to learn personally and and you're also giving value and a resource to the people who follow you too. So uh, I I love this idea of podcasting. I mean, like 10 years ago, it didn't exist. And it's just so awesome. I think educational outreach like I'm a professor who does something a little different. I actually do like, you know, podcasts and educational outreach. And I just found that this is so incredibly important to do. So I was wondering how you kind of pick the themes that you want to to choose to talk about.
0: I used to do it the other way. I used to listen to the audience and kind of give them what they want. And sometimes I found myself just not engaged, like not fully engaged in the questions and the interviews. So if I if I don't have a burning desire to just like grab you by the shoulders and say, don't leave. Like I have a million questions about keto. I want to understand this thing. I'm getting old, I'm getting fat and you're the best. Like, you know what I mean? Like I have to have that fire to bring the, in the moment, like I have my list of questions, but the, in the moment well, I'm living in Italy now. And what do I do with the pasta? And what do I do with the wine? And like, that makes an interesting conversation. But when I just have, you know, I don't know, like, um, I don't want to say it publicly, but I, but I've done, uh, many, many celebrities and I just, like I just, like, I I don't, I don't have questions for them other than what's it like to be somebody this famous, but it's not like this burning where I just want to learn. So I have to have somebody that I feel like not only is the expert in a particular subject, but I am extremely interested in talking about that. Otherwise Every one of them, it's just, I phone it in and it just sucks. It's never, it's never good. So, you know, with yeah. you, it was, it was, it was easy because I did, I did the CGM and I saw the difference. And then I came here and I was like, God, you know, I'd love it. Like if I could talk to, to Dom about like, why are the Italians skinny and they're <laughs> eating pot? Like that would be, a, yeah. I think that would be a great conversation to have. So um, anyway, that's how I do it.
1: That's great. Yeah. You can't fake passion and enthusiasm for something. I noticed that, and that's why I worked really hard to uh, steer my research path down back towards nutrition so I could come back to something that I was really interested in. And actually, uh, I'm in a pharmacology department, so people sort of raised their eyes and said it was academic suicide. Like, how are you going to get funding to study this weird diet? But I just knew that if I was interested in it, that I was more likely to be sort of successful in that. And then I had passion for that. So, so that's interesting to hear your thoughts on that too.
0: I just interviewed a girl. Her name is Juliana Fercy. Does that name sound familiar to you? No. Okay. She's a Harvard professor. Uh, Tim Ferriss just had her on her show recently. Oh, she is an out. expert in fungi. And she... She hangs out with um, Jane Goodall. Oh, yeah. That's that's yeah, that's like that's like her her bestie. They're they're like, they're they're both passionate about what they do, and it was a very similar conversation in the same sort of area where you know she said, "Look, you know, I'm I'm a professor, like you know, who would you?" If somebody would have said, you know, I'm going to go all in on fungi, you know, you'd be like, that sounds like the most boring thing in the world. I'm telling you, I left that hour so fascinated by fungi. She's like, look, the wine you're drinking, fungi, the pasta you're eating, fungi, the trees that are in Tuscany, fungi. Yeah. (laughs) So then we we talked about like psilocybin, you know, and I was like, everybody's on a, everybody's on a trip right now. And can you explain it? And she, I'll leave you with this. She said, okay, let's say that you had a trauma with this pen. I don't know. Somebody poked you in the eye and you see a pen and you go crazy. If, I give you psilocybin under the right conditions. We can rewire your neural networks to completely change your association to this. We do it with PTSD. Uh, we do it with people, you know, that were, uh, you know, every time they hear a noise because they were in war. They have and she went down the whole thing. Um, and I, I'm a mushroom fan. I mean, yeah. I, I I was fascinated by mushrooms. So sometimes it's like it's not that I'm, I have an interest, but it's like, I don't understand it. Like, why is everybody talking about going to a shaman now? Every friend I have in LA with a big hat is going, Oh my God, it's amazing. You got to go do a psilocybin. You know what I mean? Like, what is, what is it? Why are they? So I have to have the, you know, at least the, like the high level curiosity Context, um, yeah. or I have to have like very granular, like I have very specific questions that I want to ask you because I don't understand this. So it's very self serving.
1: Yeah, well, that's a fascinating subject. And actually, I'm a consultant for a company, Leo Wellness, but they're changing names to First Person, where they're developing very unique strains of psilocybin that will be used uh, ultimate in microdose formulations that. Probably, hopefully in the, in the future will be available to most consumers. But um, So we are actually embarking on a research project to look at this very thing, to look at uh, psilocybin-induced increases in you know, BDNF, or brain-derived neurotropic factor, and how it can enhance synaptic connectivity and rewire the brain and actually be, uh, be neuroprotective. So that, that's research that we're embarking in actually now. So uh, it's something that I don't talk about. I know there's a stigma associated with it, and I think maybe that's why I'm a little bit hesitant, a little bit hesitant about talking to the research right now. But hopefully, things are moving in the direction where the stigma will fall, and even the NIH, the NIH is having workshops on this. I mean, there's like funding available. Five years ago, I would have said no way that would never happen, but it's actually happening. So I'm excited I mean, to see that
0: people are uh people are smoking pot in the streets now like the world is yeah. uh, is uh, is and it's legal it's and it's uh, yeah. it's the world is changing. Well Dominic um this was absolutely fantastic. I I cannot thank you enough. Um do you have any final words, suggestions or an ask for the people that are listening?
1: Uh, well, I want to wish you a happy birthday and hope you, Thank really you enjoy your day and trip to Venice. Uh, well, people can find me if they want to learn more about what we're doing. Uh, one stop shop is really, uh, the ketonutrition.org website. So go there. We have a blog, sign up for the newsletter and you'll keep up to date on everything that we're doing. Thanks buddy. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it.